Okay, so this is lesson number three of the fall quarter. The title of the lesson is Paul's Call for Christian Unity, and that is Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 through chapter 2, verse 18. So the first section is called The Believer's Struggle. And that is verses 27 through 30 of chapter 1. Thank you. And so, and I neglected to pray for this. Yeah. So, Lord, we do want to, um, for the benefit of the online people, we do want to ask for your illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit as we look at this, at this epistle, which is directly to us as the church and that we would walk in the way that you desire. Okay, I forgot about that. So anyway, um, remember Paul's in prison. He's been in prison for over two years. And uh, two years in Caesarea, and now he's in prison in Rome. And so, um, and the first principle we learned, remember, the book of Philippians is about joy. How to have joy. We as believers, are able to be joyful every single day, no matter what is happening. And Paul's teaching us how to do that. And remember, the first, the first principle was to look at life with a glass-half-full attitude. That's what we talked about last week. So in verse 27... Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So he's talking about believers having a united mind. So here he's turning from his own trials to their lives. And his instruction is to conduct themselves according to what they had become through their belief in Jesus. So, you know, when we believe, we the Holy Spirit indwells us. And the rest of our life is learning how to live like it. <laughs> like the Holy Spirit indwells us. So, and we want to live worthy of the gospel, and that is the second phase of our salvation, which is sanctification. We want to be cooperate with the Holy Spirit to become sanctified. So then he says to stand firm in one spirit, one mind. So how is that done? We can pray and ask for it. Is that talking about a hive mind? Well, a hive mind like the bees, like on the science fiction movies, you know? No, that's not what it's talking about. Right. And that is a choice that we make every day, right? Yeah, Paul also said in Romans 12, too, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. All of us have individual personalities. Yeah, you know, there's there's a big move about unity in the church, and it's been going on for a long time. It's the ecumenical movement, ecumenical movement. That is not what is being talked about here. You know, Christ has already 
created unity by his death, burial, and resurrection. And that's Ephesians 2, 13 through 16. Paul again saying, But now in Christ Jesus you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Remember, he's writing to Gentiles here. Gentiles were far off. Now they've been brought near. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man. That is us thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. The enmity he's talking about there is between Jew and Gentile. You know, what's fashionable today is uh, racial unity. Racial unity is already accomplished in Christ too. You know, that is something that need not be worried about. So, we want to refuse to be offended by each other. That's how we work that out in the church, you know, because we all offend each other. You know, we say stupid things. We, or we? <laughs> I say stupid things, okay, to people, and I, my wife is the most prominent, <laughs> and I irritate her by stupid things that I say that I don't think. You know, and uh, so, you know, by the Holy Spirit, we have the ability to refuse to be offended. Mm -hmm. And that's how, that's how we, you know, have that unity. So verse 28, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. So do we have opponents? Opponents? Of course. We do have opponents. Yeah. What kind of opponents do we have? So one of our opponents is demonic opposition. Okay. Any others? Flesh. Our flesh. Yes. Yeah. The world, right? The world. The world system, which is controlled by Satan. That. So that is what the... Christian is opposed by, and it's a for, formidable opposition, you know, the flesh, your own flesh, and the world, and the devil, and his minions. So, um, let's see, John 15, 18 and 19, Jesus warned the apostles about this, it says, if the worlds hate you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. And also Peter wrote that the devil is a roaring lion seeking whom he might devour. So yeah, it's, it's not surprising that there are opponents. So when... When do you when do you get an opposition in your own life? If you say something, God, you'll get opposition. I'm sorry. I'm yeah. You. No, that's okay. 
Yeah, that's that's an attack from your own flesh, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, you know, Paul here too is talking about his opponents or the Philippians' opponents. You know, they're being persecuted too. And uh, anytime you speak up or you tell people that they need Jesus, it's an offense to them. It offends their pride. And you'll be attacked. So, or, you know, I mean, it's getting more and more easily to be attacked now in our culture today because our culture is so opposite to God's ways right now. If we say something about it, we'll be attacked. So this is expected. It's expected. Nothing, you know, nothing we shouldn't, we should be surprised by. So this is... Christians are subject to wrath, right? Paul was talking about the wrath of these opponents, and we're subject to the wrath of the world, which I guess is part of this, and the wrath of Satan. What wrath are we not subject to? The wrath of God. We are not subject to the wrath of God. And that is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 10. We are to be waiting for his son from heaven. He'll be raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. So, and there's all sorts of passages through the New Testament that the church is not subject to the wrath of God, which is one of the reasons why we believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. Because the tribulation, Daniel's 70th week, which Dr. Fruchtenbaum spoke about a little bit, is God's wrath all the way through. And we are not subject to that. You know, one of the main reasons for the tribulation is to bring the Jews to faith through trouble, Jacob's trouble, until they finally say, I give, man. Uncle, <laughs> stop. <laughs> and, uh, and it's also to pry Satan's grip off this world. So um, so anyway, we, uh, we will not go into the tribulation. Uh, and that is one reason. There are seven reasons uh, that for the pre-tribulational rapture, but I don't have time to talk about that this moment. So we have protection from Satan's wrath, don't we? Yeah, that's what Matthew was speaking about, the full armor of God. So that so spiritual warfare is mainly defensive, isn't it? There there are some people that say I bind you, Satan. Right? When you say that, nothing happens. Satan thumbs his nose. You know? Satan will be bound at the beginning of the millennium by an angel with a chain and he'll throw him into the abyss and lock the door. That's when he'll be bound. So saying that I'm going to bind you, Satan, is makes you look foolish, you know, because there's no, there's no effectuation there. <laughs> it's not going to happen. But Jesus did pray in his high priestly prayer not to take the uh, apostles out of the world, but that they be protected 
from the evil one. So yeah, we don't have to be, we need to be respectful. You know, Satan is very powerful, extremely powerful, much more powerful than we are. He is not more powerful than the Holy Spirit. So, but even Michael the archangel wouldn't talk to him directly. That's an interesting passage. He was arguing with the devil about the body of Moses, Michael the archangel, and he said, the Lord rebuke you. I'm not going to talk to you. So, um, no, I, I think if you, Dr. Fruchtenbaum made a, a point about this too, if you take a literal interpretation of scripture, you take it at its word, it says Michael the archangel. I think it is Michael the archangel. I don't think it's anything else. Well, I mean, the angel of the Lord, I think, in old, the Old Testament can be uh, shown to be a pre-incarnate um, vision of the second member of the Trinity. But Michael the archangel in that passage is Michael the archangel. Right. And and Jesus showed us how to do that, didn't he? He yeah. used the word of God. He was guided by the Holy Spirit. That is the same thing we have. So when, you know, uh, Satan tempts us, it's good to know the Bible. Right. The Holy Spirit gives us power. He gives us power to do what the Lord asks. So verse 29 is kind of a scary verse, a little bit. It says, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. That's a little scary. That reminds me of Matthew sixteen twenty four. Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And suffering is part of that. So um, if we suffer, that is expected. It's no, you know, it's no big deal. But also remember that the same Jesus said, all you who are weary and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's the exact same Jesus that said, take up your cross and follow me. And that seems to be opposing. Yeah, opposing, yeah. And I think that it has to do with the Holy Spirit's indwelling. Mm -hmm. And the power that you obtain from the Holy Spirit when you are yielded to him. He will give you what is needed to, to do what the Lord asks, well, no matter how hard it is. It's, yeah, just so think, yeah. Basically he will carry it for you. Physically. Yeah. yeah, he will. He, you know, all he wants is your faith. He will give you the power to do everything else. Just like Abraham, you know, Abraham waited all these years for the promised son. He finally got the promised son, and the Lord said, "Okay, take him up to this mountain and kill him, and offer him as a sacrifice." Well, what does Abraham do? He says, "Okay," because he believed God. You know what's going on. No, he was cooperating. 
Yeah, exactly. And that's tremendous faith. That is faith, too. Yeah, he was cooperating. He knew what was going on. And, uh, you know, Hebrews tells us what Abraham was thinking. We do not know what Isaac was thinking. I don't know what Isaac was thinking. But he was obedient. Abraham was thinking, in, in the Hebrew passage, it says that God would raise Isaac from the dead. That's what Jesus wants us to do. Yeah, we should have the faith like a child. Okay, so that is uh, section A. So section B is oneness in Christ. And th that is verses uh, 1 through 4 of chapter 2. So, um, so that's kind of the end of Paul's first principle for joy, which is to consider your glass half full. Count your blessings every day. Now he's going to go into the second principle for joy, which we can learn, which is how it's to be a servant. Being a servant will give you joy. So um, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, <clears throat> if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, that sounds familiar, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, do, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. So verse 1, therefore... Yeah, what did I write? I wrote down something I don't understand. <laughs> yeah, so remember verse chapter 1, verse 21 says, For me, to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Yeah, persecution is a routine part of the Christian experience. It should not surprise us. So in verse 2 he says, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Yeah, we already talked about this. This happens because when you believe, you are placed into the universal church. And you're given the Holy Spirit, which everyone else has, which is interesting. If you go to another city and you go to a church, it's like you already have a camaraderie with these people. And I'm sure it's because you share the same spirit, you know, when you go there. So... um I have a couple of verses written down here. I might have to speed up. Think so? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, we've discussed this already this morning. It says, uh, Jesus said, the whole church quotes John seventeen twenty one that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. It's a beautiful thing. Four verses earlier, it says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. That is how we are united, in the truth. And, you know, if you have to jettison truth to remain united, you are no longer united. You do not jettison the truth. You hang That's on to it. Right. Although, doing the right thing. Yeah. 
Some churches do it, though. Some churches will do it. Many churches are doing it. You know, especially in regards to prophecy, they'll just ignore it. It is ignored. 27% of the Bible is ignored and things like that. Right, right. Yeah, without this uh, uh, rallying around the truth, you get ecumenism, you know. Um, Charles Coulson was saved in prison. Charles Coulson was one of the deputies of Richard Nixon. And after Watergate, he was imprisoned and he was saved in prison. And he came up with a uh, group called Catholics and Protestants United or something like that. Um, And back in the day, I thought, oh, that's a great idea. Well, you know, I've learned since then. And we can't be united with people who teach false doctrine. Catholics teach false doctrine. They teach a false doctrine about salvation. That salvation is not by faith in Christ alone, but it's faith plus your works that saves you. That's why a Catholic can never say, no, he's saved or not. Because he doesn't know if his works are good enough. You know? And so, that is a very sad thing. That is a very sad thing, and that's why they come up with these mortal sins, you know, which send you to hell. There's no sin that sends you to hell. Unbelief is what sends you to hell. You know, you choose not to believe, and so you choose to go to hell. But that's why we, you know, we don't believe in ecumenism. We want to be united around the truth. The extreme, extreme ecumenism is what I've seen some evangelicals do, which is called interfaith dialogue, where they will interact with Muslims to try to reach a common ground. You know, Jesus calls us just to proclaim the gospel to them. And the Lord loves the Muslims. The Lord loves the Muslims, and, you know, he wants them to come to him. And so, you know, we we want to have that same mindset. Uh, Some things they do irritate us greatly (laughs) when they attack us and things. But um, we want them to come to faith. And some will, and some are. Yeah. Yeah, Christianity is unique. It's unique, you know. Believe in Jesus and you'll be saved. That's it. Everything else, Confucianism, you know, Buddhism, Islam, Catholicism, you have to work for it. Work for it. Uh, Verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Now that's a hard thing to do, isn't it? But that's being a servant. Notice it does not say to neglect yourself, but to put others' needs above yours. You don't neglect yourself and serve them. We want to have that mindset, you know, how can I help? How can I help? Yeah, verse 4, do not merely look out for your own personal interests. So, you know, we all have personal interests, of course, and we want to look out after those, but also for the interests of others. And that leads to joy. That leads to joy. And now Paul is going to give us four examples of, of people. And he starts off with Jesus who are servants. So that's section C, which is a hymn to Christ. 
apparently an ancient hymn, this passage. Um, so anyway, verses 5 through 11. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of man, men, excuse me, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by become, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is a great example. So this attitude is to be the unifying principle for the Philippian church, and it should be for our church too. That it is our mission to be humble servants, putting others first. That is our mission in life, to be humble servants, putting others first. And Jesus is the greatest example of this. He existed in the form of God, second person of the Trinity, full deity. And uh, remember Mark 10.45, he said, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So he wants us to follow his example. So in verse 7, he emptied himself. That's the Greek word kenosis, the emptying of Christ, um, which is an amazing thing taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. You know, he wanted to be one of us. Otherwise, why would he do all this? He made this creation and became one of us, which is amazing, you know. So Jesus is God, but he refused to use his prerogatives as God while he was a man. Well, he's still a man. <laughs> but you know he did he did use his power for um rarely for messianic miracles which only the messiah could do remember the healing of the blind man the healing of the jewish leper and there's another one what was the other one i can't remember the other one but it's three and uh that's why when he comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration, the messiahs are stumped, you know, because they have a mute. Oh, that's the one. To uh, cast out a demon who caused muteness. That was the other messianic miracle. So the disciples were trying to do it. They couldn't do it. That's because nobody but the messiah can do it. <laughs> that's why I said you have to pray and have God do it. You can't do it on your own. So... um but well, when Jesus became a man and he lived among us, he relied on the Holy Spirit as he asks us to do. We can live a life like Christ because we are given the Holy Spirit when we believe. And um, 
Can we be Christ? No. Can we be sinless? No. There's some people who teach that too. No, we cannot be sinless because our sin nature, which he did not have, is still in us. The sin nature should gradually lose its power as we mature, but it's still there. And it can flare in an instant if you let it. Yeah, our sin nature doesn't go away. But it loses power. Yeah, and as you grow older, right. Yeah, you know, that's the, we have a little booklet up there called The Three Tenses of Salvation. So the, the first tense is your justification, where you're delivered from the penalty of sin. That's belief in Jesus alone. The second tense is your sanctification, which is essentially the rest of your life, and that is learning how to walk by the Spirit. And that is getting rid of the power of sin over your life. And that is a very gradual process. And some people, it doesn't happen. Some believers remain carnal. That is an unfortunate truth. They are believers, and that's an irreversible choice. But they prefer to stay in the sin nature. And so, the, and so they live like Lot did. Basically, there are some sins we like better, too. You know, <laughs> I know in my life that's true. There are some sins I like. Why do you sin? You sin because you like it, right? Otherwise, you wouldn't do it. So anyway, um, but if the Lord asks you to give up something, he will give you something to replace it that's better than what you gave up. So this is from the quarterly which sounds good because about this. Because of Jesus' sin, sinlessness, however, he could choose whether to die. No, I never thought about that either. How do you get saved through the Mosaic Law? You keep it perfectly, right? He did. <laughs> you keep it perfectly. So he could choose whether to die or not. All men and women are subject to physical death unless God decrees differently, but Jesus could conceivably have rejected this final conclusion to his earthly life. Jesus, however, chose to die. Not to just leave this life peacefully like Enoch, but to die on the cross in anguish and humiliation as our substitute, so that we might live in a renewed and eternal communion with God. Yeah, but he, he was qualified to do that. He was qualified to live, to not have to die. But, you know, that is the reason he came. That's the whole reason he came. Exactly. So if if he actually done that, he just wouldn't be God. <laughs> right? I mean, that's not how God is. This, is. this is a general principle. Jesus emptied himself. He became like a servant. He didn't become a king, which would be humbling himself, he became, you know, a carpenter, and he died as a, as a criminal. That is the way to exaltation in the Christian life. God is opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves, this is talking to believers, under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. That's our glorification. That's what we're waiting for. So um, Jesus did it the most. 
he went from one extreme to the other. I mean, he was God. He became treated like a criminal, human criminal. Talk about humbling, you know. Our 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 movement isn't as far, you know. He no, he didn't fight back. So okay, we have uh, one more section. Let's see if we can get through it before they wrangle us up. Yeah, before they wrangle us up. <laughs> so verse twelve. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. There's that word again, joy. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. So verse 17, Paul is pointing to himself as another example of this servanthood. He's pouring himself out for the Philippian Christians. And this is to be the unifying attitude. He talks about being united in mind. Be united in this mind of servanthood. Okay? That attitude is to be the unifying principle for the Philippian church because they were arguing between themselves. So that's our mission, to be humble servants. And I have to remind myself of that all the time, all the time, because I, I reject it. My flesh rejects it. I don't want to serve somebody else. I want you to serve me. <laughs> you know? And so that's something that we have to train ourselves in. You know. Look at verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's a verse that confuses people. What salvation is it he talking about there? That's right. So that's the second phase of our salvation. First phase is justification. Yes, Lord, I believe you're saved. You're going to heaven. Second phase, rest of your life. <laughs> now there are multiple commands given that you're you know encouraged to follow in the power of the spirit and that's what he's talking about here and do it with fear and trembling understanding who god is when you think about god it does create a certain fear and trembling we know that he loves us but his immense power and the fact that there's no spy uh, you know, organization in the world that can spy on you like God does. He knows. He knows what you're thinking. Well, what he wants from us is faith. Yeah, that's what he wants. And uh, you know, Jesus says, "You called me Lord, Lord." 
why don't you do what I say? You know, if you believe in me, then you should do what I say. And so, but it's hard for us. So that's why I love, and this this was turned on to me by, we had another missionary here not too long ago, the guy from the Ukraine. And and he read this verse, and I had never, it had never clicked in my brain before. This is Paul praying. He said that he, God, would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through the Holy Spirit in the inner man. And and he explained it like the Holy Spirit is you're a you're a cup and the Holy Spirit is pouring power into you that helps you do it. Do the Christian life, you know. So um I that is very encouraging to me. So, you know, I we all are faced with things that were like, gosh, can I do that? I don't know if I can do that. You know, people ask you to do stuff. I don't know. And you say, well, the Lord wants you to. Okay. And you go through it, and you kind of are nervous. And when you go through it, the Lord gives you the power to do it, and it all works out. You know, it's great. You don't get the power beforehand, and that's why you don't run ahead of God. Don't plan things on your own. Think about this. Jesus never was an originalist. He never came up with his own stuff. What did he say? The things I teach you are from the Father. We should be ex exactly that way. We should not want to be original. I don't want to be original at all. I want to be, you know, teach the Bible as it is. And nothing original. That's right. This book is beyond me. Yeah. So anyway, um, we probably should end. Let's see. <laughs> but, you know, the Word of God is so important for the second part of our salvation. Yeah, so anyway, we'll end on this. Jesus said, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And that's what Paul says here in verse 16, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain, nor toil in vain. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these wonderful promises. And we pray that we would be servants, so we might have joyful lives. In Jesus' name, amen.